Welcome to Cultivating Conservation, a podcast navigating new ideas of what conservation means and how we really can promote change. My name's Megan, and for the past 10 years I've been working as a filmmaker, telling stories about the natural world, in particular stories about whales. And I found on so many occasions whilst discussing different issues that all these incredible people around me doing exceptional things were not comfortable calling themselves conservationists. I'm here to call you all out and to instigate informal chats with individuals from all backgrounds about what the term really means to them. Delving into what shaped their thoughts and how each navigate the ideas of true conservation in what can sometimes feel like a constantly changing and hopeless future. My hope is to nourish and grow conscious conversations to ultimately help save the planet. Incremental change leading to monumental change. And if listening to this inspires just one person to get involved in something they really care about, then I'll be happy. So, what does conservation mean to you? I picked up a book in my school library aged 13 called Listening to Wales by Alexandra Morton, and it changed my life. Alex spent the early years of her career studying Orky and Corky, captive orca whales in Los Angeles in the 1970s. She eventually left in search of Corky's family, and this took her to the Broughton Archipelago, where she found a five pod and began studying the northern resident killer whales. Soon after, she stumbled upon a threat to the whale's very existence. Their food source, salmon, were disappearing, and subsequently the entire ecosystem was at stake. Over the next three decades, Alex dedicated her life to opposing open net fish farms on the migration routes of wild salmon. And in 2023, the last of the farms are now being removed from the area and the salmon are coming back. 20 years after picking up that very book, I also now live in the Broughton Archipelago, spending my life dedicated to the whales. And sitting down to chat with Alex, uh, my 13-year-old self probably would not have believed you. We're just sitting at my dining room table, um, looking out over the Broughton Archipelago. Um, It's a beautiful day. You can see the mountains of Vancouver Island and the incredibly abundant and rich waters of Blackfish Sound. You can see snow-capped mountains. Um, You can see all these watersheds that are making salmon. Some of them have clouds stuck on the top of them and rain falls and (laughs) fills the rivers and then the salmon go up and they die after they spawn and then nutrients pour down over the watershed. It's, it's, it's a really vibrant living world that we're looking at that supports so much life. If you wait for the moment where you have saved a forest or 20 trees, you may never get started. So a person as a conservationist, as soon as they make that change in their own mind and decide that they are not going to be part of the problem anymore, that they are going to start taking action, whether on a personal level in your home or whether it's in your community or it's a global uh, thing that you do, you are then a conservationist. You are part of this huge team. This, In fact, I would argue that you become a force of nature. And... Um, Someone wrote somewhere that all of us who are on the front lines today are the immune response of the planet. And I I just, I love that because I'm like, oh, I'm on the big team. It's, It's easy to look at the government and look at the corporations and think they're the big team and you're the little small wheel that never gets heard or can't move very far. 
But once you start thinking of yourself as a natural part of this world, that you are nature's tool to protect life. Nature is always about that. Nature is ruthless about it, about protecting life and diversity. And once you think of yourself as being part of that, well, you know you're on the big team and that feels good. It's, it's, a, it's a very important mind shift. It's really important that people realize that they, every individual has a sphere of influence, whether it's just their home or their community or their family, um, or it's just how they behave themselves. I think it's really essential at this moment in time that everybody feel that there is something that you can do and just do it. And don't, don't overthink like it's not enough. I'm not doing enough and feeling badly about it. Just start, just step in and, and start either, you know, the recycling, growing food, maybe use your car half the amount of time that you used it before. That is enormous. Help uh, the youth who are struggling so hard today with centers that they can get involved in different types of activity. There's so much that needs to be done that I really, I worry if people think that they have to leave that to somebody who is a conservationist or is an activist or is an environmentalist. The state of the earth, the way it is right now is <laughs> it's a collective mess. We've all made it. And there's so many of us that it really is our responsibility to change our own behavior. You know, for example, I really think about whether I'm going to release carbon into the atmosphere, whether I really need to drive the car. Did, could, if I waited a day, could I do five th things in town versus the one that I really want to do? I think we really all have to have that internal conversation. And it feels good. Once you make that decision to take responsibility for your actions, just I'm talking about just in a personal way right now, it feels good because we all feel guilty about not paying attention to those things. So it's not like it's a sacrifice. It actually feels good. Then if you ramp up to activism, well, that feels really good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because you're no longer the victim. You are something different. And, you know, I, I remember the sensation when I first stepped onto the salmon farm that I occupied in the Broughton, that electric feeling of putting my foot on that thing that was killing the environment, was killing the fish, was damaging the survival of the bears and the orca, everything was, was being harmed by this farm. And to put my foot on it and stand on it and take a position of, you are going to have to go through me to continue this damage. It really, it changes you internally. It's very cathartic. It's very healing. Um, but the big steps aren't for everybody, and I want people to know that the little steps are so important as well. Massively. What are your earliest memories of the ideas of conserving 
our planet or conservation. When I was a girl, I was really strange because I loved reptiles and amphibians. I spent all my life in ponds and marshes. And I was really worried about the way people felt about rattlesnakes. So I grew up in the Berkshire Mountains of New England, and we have the timber rattlesnake. And people saw them as something that needed to be exterminated. And so... Unbelievably, with my little brother in tow, we would climb these mountains and we figured out what the, what the uh, snakes liked for their denning sites. They liked these south-facing slopes where there were uh, flat rocks with spaces between them and these kind of like snake-shaped caves. And you, you knew you were on a rattlesnake den when you found a lot of shed skins outside because the rattlesnakes come out of hibernation and they shed their skins very quickly rapidly and so there was it was quite obvious when you found one and so I was trying to find them and protect them from development but that's where I ran into my first problem um, <laughs> once you identify where they are there's people that want to go and exterminate them and uh, the same thing happened when my brother and I caught this huge snapping turtle out of a very public pond in the middle of town and people were so happy we had caught the snapping turtle because it was apparently eating the ducklings. And immediately a local restaurant came and wanted to buy it from us to make turtle soup. Oh my God. And uh, we tied it to a tree and I had my brother watch it. And I, I ran for the payphone and I called to have my friend pick me up in a car. And we put this snapping turtle in the back of the car it was so big, it took two of us to lift it. And then we're like, where do we put this snapping turtle now that the community wants its <laughs> life, right? And How old were you? I, I was probably 11. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure I put it in a pond where I caused absolute chaos by putting this large predator in it. So, yeah, I began to realize almost immediately the complexities of trying to save anything. Uh, there's... <laughs> There's a, you have to think it through a little bit. <laughs> that is an incredible story. <laughs> At what point did you first become interested in orcas? Uh, when I was a child, along with loving reptiles and amphibians, I had a huge distrust of human language. I was uncomfortable as a human. I was always like, what's my role? What am I doing? How do I look? I was just like... I was uncertain about absolutely everything. But when I looked at animals, they just always looked completely confident. They knew what they were doing. They knew what their place in the world was. They knew how to become parents. They knew how to feed. And so I decided I wanted to study language in another species. And I kept thinking, we've been hanging out with ourselves for a long time. It probably do us some good to be able to talk to another resident on this planet and I know these are big thoughts for a little girl but that's they were in my head and so I began to think about okay what animal do I want to study and at that time Jane Goodall came out on the cover of National Geographic and she really opened a door for me uh, because prior to that I thought interest in animals was child's play and I was going to have to drop that interest and I tried really hard to get interested in astrology because that seemed an adult science 
But Jane Goodall made it clear that you could be a beautiful woman in the jungle and you could go into the world of the animal. And, and so I decided that's what I was going to do. And then I needed to pick my animal and I wanted a large brained animal that talks a lot. And I felt like my choice was between primates, elephants, and dolphins. And I chose dolphins simply because I didn't want to go to Africa. So uh, it, was a, it was a bit of a random decision and I got the opportunity to study a tank full of dolphins in Los Angeles at Marineland. The park was closing for renovations and the, the curator there said, uh, sure, you would be entertainment for the dolphins and would you mind swimming with them too? And I was like over the moon, I was so happy. But when I tried to record the sounds of the dolphins and the behaviors of a tank of like 10 dolphins all doing something, I sounded like I was calling a race, a horse race, you know, it was just, it was, I couldn't keep up with them and their sounds, a lot of them were out of my hearing range and they talked over each other and I walked by the orca tank quite often and I thought, boy, those guys are boring. They're just floating there. <laughs> and then, and then Corky gave birth to the first baby killer whale conceived in captivity. And the curator, Tom Otten, asked me if I would take my hydrophones and set it up in the tank and just document this. And so I did. And for the next three days, I did not sleep. Uh, because there was just the interaction between the mother and the baby and the male. And then the baby ended up dying, um, it starved to death. And then I watched the grieving of these two whales, particularly the female. And by the time I came out of there, I was like, this is my animal. First of all, the sounds were so beautiful. And, and you know, as you know, they resonate right through you and evoked some kind of feeling that I don't know what it was, but it was, I was very drawn to them. They also spoke slowly. They did not overlap each other and I could see what they were doing. Um, and so I said goodbye to the bottlenose dolphins and it was orca from then on. How long did you spend with Orky and Corky and what was the biggest thing you learned from them? I spent about five years with them. When the baby died, I realized she'd probably get pregnant again. And I saw the baby as the opportunity to study language. I was so curious, like, what's the first, what's the first sounds it's going to learn? I just, I thought that, that was going to be my door to figuring this all out. So I set up a program. This is all volunteer. Um, nobody was paying me to do this, but I would go and spend 12 hours of the day from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And then one month later, I would record them and watch them for 12 hours at night. And I wanted to get a really solid baseline before she had the next baby. So I knew what was, I could understand you know, what to expect from their normal vocalizations. And I just felt that was what I needed to do. And so here I'm a, I'm a really young woman. I'm in my early twenties and there was this whole 
um, thing about whales just starting. It just really gotten going at that point where a lot of people thought they were basically godlike creatures or they're more, more intelligent than us. I worked with John Lilly or certainly thought they were more intelligent than us. And I was determined to be really scientific about this. I was not going to fall into the dolphin loving category. And <laughs> and then you fell in love with them. <laughs> well, they showed me things where I'd be like, oh my goodness, I can't possibly <laughs> report this. This is just too out there. And um, one of those things was the Don wall squirting ritual. Like, couldn't, can, can you apply that word to orcas? I certainly feel that uh, I can because... I would certainly agree with you on that one. Yes, every morning, uh, at some point, the sun would rise over the bleachers and hit the tank wall at a specific spot. But of course, that spot moved through the year, and it was where the um, it was where the sunlight first hit the water, and the whales knew where that spot is. And so, in the pre-dawn, they would go up to this one spot and just gently squirt a little bit of water at it, and then away they go, and kind of circling in a very sedate way. But then when the sun came up and this bar of sunlight hit the tank and hit the water, they just went into this frenzy. So a lot of it was sexual, lots of waves and splashing, but they'd go to the place and they'd press their tongues on it and squirt water on it, and then continue circling. And clearly the touching of the sun and the putting water on this sun spot was important to them. And then one night there was a terrific lightning storm and Orky, the male, opened his mouth and was looking towards the direction of the lightning, making this long groaning noise that just went on and on and on. Just, you know, the hair on my arms was rising. They did ritualistic things with, with behavior. They would just both go up to the platform, roll on their sides, lay their tails on there, and put up a peck fin, sort of spooning in a spooning position. And when I showed this to the trainers, they were shocked because it involved like three or four different simultaneous behaviors by the two whales together. And I, I watched them develop this behavior. Like they worked on it. They, they didn't, I got to see them invent it and then get really good at it. And, um, and so, <clears throat> you know, other things happened like, when I finally went to British Columbia to try to find Corky's family uh, and came back that first time, I said to the trainer, one of the trainers, I said, boy, I'd, I'd sure love to see how do you start training a behavior with these whales? Like, how do you get the idea across what you do, what you want them to do? And she's like, sure. Um, we've kind of run out of ideas of what to train them. So if you can come up with something, yeah, I'll do it. And I said, and I'm imagining this as I'm saying it to her. When I was in Johnson Straits, I saw the killer whales sometimes come up and slap their dorsal fins. The height of their surfacing, they roll and just slap their dorsal fins. And all the months I'd been watching Orky and Corky, they had never done that. 
And Trish, the trainer, goes, sure, yeah, we'll do that sometime. She picks up her bucket, she walks off, Corky surfaces and slaps her dorsal fin on the water. No. <laughs> and then she does it again, and then she does it again. And I, I took off, and I ran after Trish, and I grabbed her by the arm. I was like, you have got to see this. She comes back up. By now, Corky has generated a wave. She's <laughs> swimming up to the top of the wave and rolling and slapping her dorsal fin hard. Exactly what I was envisioning, which I had not seen for months. The trainer didn't know the whales could do this. And the trainer looks at me and she says, yep, that's killer whales for you. <laughs> so, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, so it's really hard. Like, what do you do with this information? Do you start saying these animals are psychic? Do you start saying they're mind readers? What do you do with this information? And I decided that what I would do is I would file it in my brain intact and would not try to describe it, but also would not forget it. And so over the years, I've compiled quite a few of those and I don't know what they mean, but there's definitely a lot going on there. And how, what made you decide to leave Corky and Orky and come to British Columbia? I, so I made the decision to, to study wild whales because as these babies were dying, um, I mean, Corky was full of milk. She was incredibly attentive to her babies. They all crashed into the side of the tank immediately because they couldn't swim in a straight line because it was such a little circular hell that they were in. And so Corky would have to push her baby off the wall continuously. The babies clearly were born with some kind of instinct to go to a white spot and would end up trying to nurse on the corner of her mouth. And at that point, there was no way to distract the baby down to the mammary slits underneath of her, which also had little white spots on them. And I began to think, well, if they can't raise their children, are they insane? Am I dedicating my life to studying insane whales? What would happen if I studied people that had been in prison since 1968? Would I be studying normal language? And at that time, it was just becoming known in British Columbia that there was different dialects and, you know, my mid-twenties now, the ripe old age of the mid-twenties, I was like, I have spent so much time learning this dialect. I'd like to take that information into the wild. And so I contacted Dr. Michael Big and I was like, do you by any chance know what pod these whales are from? And he was so helpful, unlike most American scientists. <laughs> He said, uh, yes, uh, it's the A5s. I don't know where Orky's from, but Corky's the A5s. Here's her mother. Uh, here's their ID pictures. Uh, go to Alert Bay in August. <laughs> and he sent me these Xerox copies of her family. And, you know, when I tell this story to people, I mean, you know, it was not a hard thing to do. People are amazed that you could go into the wilderness of the BC coast and find the mother of a whale who's been in captivity, Corky, since 1969. But it was very easy and I found them on the first night. How did you arrive in Alert Bay? Did you arrive on the ferry and how did it feel to walk off that ferry and see that huge sign that just says, home of the killer whale? <laughs> I uh, <clears throat> had a small pickup truck and 
head in an inflatable boat, my friends, and everything I thought you would need to camp on Hanson Island and study whales. And, and I was exhausted and tense and very excited. I'd never operated a boat out really in the water. You know, I puttered around in bays. But I was so excited and I basically took one sniff and I was like, oh my gosh, this is my habitat. I, I love this. So I take the, take the boat and um, set it up on the, on the launching ramp, inflate this thing. And there was a, uh, it was between fishing openings. And so there was seine boats all over the government dock tied two or three deep. And I was entertainment. This girl from California with her friends with this ridiculous looking limp thing that they're calling a boat. <laughs> and uh, we get it inflated and there's no place to tie this boat to the dock. The only place left is under the ramp, which I didn't realize was going to, you know, be squashed at high tide. But I tried to start the motor and it wouldn't start. And uh, a RCMP boat came in, the Chilco Post, and... <laughs> This guy jumps off the boat, pops off the hood of my engine. I don't know what he did, but he got it started, put the lid back on, he walks away, and I was like, wow, Canada's cool. <laughs> and then uh, I'm waiting for Paul Spong, the legendary Paul Spong. Uh, he's going to guide me out to Hanson Island where my, myself and my friends were going to stay. And it's starting to get dark, and <laughs> Paul's still not there. And... <laughs> Suddenly, I hear these very sharp noises that I think is a gunshot. Uh, I was living in Los Angeles at the time, and I'd heard gunshots. And uh, I look over, and oh my gosh, these blows are hanging in the sunset over this dark black water. And I just remember, like, almost in a trance, untying the lines and just idling out to them dropping the hydrophones over, and it was the A5s. And it just struck me how big their sounds were and how they filled that space and how they echoed. I was used to hearing the sounds in a concrete tank with the continual sound of the drain in the background. And then the other thing that just hit me in a deep, visceral way was these fat, playful young whales squirming over the top of their moms and oh my god I felt the most painful pang of guilt I still feel it that I was there and not Corky you know it just felt such a betrayal and so wrong but I still feel that every year when I think about the fact that collectively in my time here on the coast, I've spent more time with Corky's family than probably than Corky ever did. Well, wow. and the same with you. We've spent more time mm -hmm. listening to Corky's family than Corky ever has. I never thought about it that way, but that is exactly Corky true. Corky never met her brother. Like I've spent yeah. the last 13 years in love with A60, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Corky's never Corky's never met him before. It's it's in, yeah even when i'm diving around here i think i've spent more i've spent more time in the intertidal zone looking at all the different life that she was supposed to look at 
than she ever has done. And it's, it is heartbreaking. It really is because you can't spend time with these creatures and not realize that they really do get what's going on. This is a very, a very um, intelligent, sensitive, and, you know, when you ask me what was the most important thing between those whales, it's really it was the bond between the two of them. So it really mattered as family with them on a level that I, I believe is greater than ours for the simple reason that to begin with, they breathed together. I never did that with my children. They breathed their own rate. I breathed my rate. But when I watched Corky's babies, the only, the only way they could survive is to know to only open your blowhole when mom does because otherwise you are going to suck water in. And so they start breathing together, and then you see them as adults breathing together. Um, so, you know, I was so determined at that time not to become a conservationist. I had read every single book written about people that went into the wilderness to study animals, and every single book was the same, with the first third of the book being this incredible voyage of discovery, discovery of the place, of the creature, of how to live in it. The second part of the books were invariably, basically, oh no, it's all about to be destroyed by some human activity. And part three were these really ill-suited people, such as myself, trying to fix it. So going to government, getting grad students in, turning your research situation into a facility where more people could do more research so that whatever was going wrong could be documented more thoroughly or the value of the animals could be better recorded. And, you know, I followed Jane Goodall's life very, very closely and I just felt tremendously sad for her that she had to leave this incredible life of discovery in the jungles to traipse around the world trying to get the attention of the people who were in power. So I ignored whales in captivity. I just walked away. And uh, obviously I still feel very guilty about that. And um, it's, yeah, in the end, it didn't work because I did have to get involved in conservation because I live in the same world as the whales, and so there was no way to avoid it. Because you, your, your plan initially was to continue to study whales forever, I guess. Absolutely. And I think so often, what if I had spent the last 40 years as engrossed in their communication as I was in the beginning? Um, I mean, I dreamt I would dream in whale. And I'd, I'd, I'd wake up thinking I understood it. And I could, as I wake up, I could feel it slipping away. I have notes in my notebook where I actually transcribed whale conversations with the codes that I had, the letters and numbers. And you can just, I, I color coded them in hopes that my visual, because I'm, more, I'm a more visual animal and they're a more acoustic animal. And I thought if I just color code their conversations, maybe, maybe something will come to me uh, that I'm missing by just listening to them. I recorded their behaviors and their sounds and I put them together. What are they doing when they say this? What are they doing when they say that? 
I mean, I did realize as we got into it that there was a lot going on that I was never going to perceive. There was this really interesting theory that came out of Woods Hole that because the whales are so good at sound, you know, at producing sound, they're so uh, consistent with how they make their calls, and because their connection between their ears and their brain is basically a super highway, whereas we have a little dirt bike trail. So we're, we're getting the signal, but they're getting like so much more information. And so this uh, scientist at Woods Hole theorized that if you've got orca on like opposite sides of Johnson Straits and one orca goes, Wee and the other orca hears that, it, they can see what's in between the two whales by what's missing from that call when, it, when they receive it. So they could see schools of fish. Wow. It's just a theory, but it's kind of like, it's kind of like a, a lighthouse light. Mm. You know, boom, yeah. it illuminates, and then it's gone, and boom, it illuminates with every call. I thought the whales, when they use that call back and forth, they're basically saying, I'm over here and doing fine. And this, she would answer, I'm over here and doing fine. But in fact, it could have been much more sophisticated. So I began to worry that I never was going to decipher a language because they were seeing with sound. Well, that's a question that we always get asked at Orca Lab is when are you going to create the, the whale dictionary? And I just, mm. I never really know how to properly articulate it. But to, to understand that a group of take for example the a30s may have 11 categorized sounds so you put in a handful more sounds that we could probably categorize further than that there's no way that with a human language of an english human language of 26 characters and however many words at our disposal there's no way that we would be able to sit down and say that word means hello or that word means food or right just doesn't work like that there's just way too much, there's way more going on there than we're ever, I and think, going to be able to translate. Totally. And the other problem is we really can't see them most of the time. Um, I began to, like, exactly. maybe I should have picked elephants because, you know, you can study their scat, their tracks, their interactions. You can see their body positions. These guys have no hackles, no... Yeah. Of course, there is a lot of information in how they surface, but it's all acoustic but then as things began to happen and I began to see more and more inexplicable events, I started thinking, okay, wait a minute, what is really going on here? Like, what can they perceive? I, I became very careful with my thoughts around Orca. I just, I just realized that they were picking up on something in me. Not that they were focused on me and I really I really resist people who, who think that the whales are all about them. But, you know, there was this one really strange thing that happened. I was at Orca Lab, and uh, at that time there were these yearly meetings where we would get together. And there was one researcher that said, you know, I, we were talking about captivity, and he said, I think really what you need to do is capture whole pods together. And I think the A4s would be really good. And I was like, whoa, wait a minute, no, wait a minute, there's two sisters and they've lost this and they're struggling and they've they got this small family. And I just went into total defensive mode. And, and Paul goes, Alex, Alex, it's, it's just theoretical. And so I calmed down. 
And then I gave a presentation. I was asked, okay, what are you seeing in the inlets? And I was like, oh, I see them here and I see them here, but I never see them in Kramer Pass, which is odd because I live on Kramer Pass. If, if they were there, I would have seen them. So I go home and a few days later, oh, there's the A4s <laughs> at the Birdwoods. Wow. And they really frightened me because they wouldn't let me move. I was in a Zodiac. Normally I'm in a larger boat, but I was in a little inflatable that day. Every time I started to move, a whale came up right off the bow and right beside the boat. And of course, I had always had small children in the boat, so I was maybe more nervous than maybe other whale researchers. Finally, I was like, okay, next time this whale comes up, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just grab the dorsal fin, just touch it back. <laughs> and um, at that point, they stopped corralling me and they went straight to Kramer Pass. <laughs> and they went down Kramer Pass, then they came up Kramer Pass, and then they went back down. And I was like, uh, I, by then I'd been there quite a few years, I'd never seen them in Kramer Pass. There's all these this weird series of events, and I was like, okay, you heard me. <laughs> I, I don't know what else to think. At what point do you feel you became a conservationist? <sighs> I guess... It's kind of a funny term because a, a conservationist, really what I'm, it's, it's bigger than that. It's like trying to save a piece of the planet. Um, conservationist, you know, is that a job description? See, I never got paid to do the work. I never got hired to protect the salmon. It was always a matter of making money, enough money to keep going by other means, whether it was writing or presentations or commercial fishing or, um, but it was in 2001 that I just stopped pretending that I was still studying whales because it just got to be a smaller and smaller and smaller part of my life because the salmon farms just were out of control. We were getting toxic algae blooms. There was Atlantics in the river. Um, it, the whales left I remember the day that the A1s first experienced the uh, acoustic harassment devices and they came out of Tribune Channel and they were heading towards Fife Sound and they, their heads were out of the water. They were cruising along at a 45 degree angle. And I'm like, what are they looking at? What are they looking at? I was trying to figure out what was so interesting in the sky that they didn't want to dive. And then I threw my headsets or my hydrophone over and uh, the needles just slammed into the red zone and it was like this cricket noise. But I could tell it was really loud because of the way my... I didn't know what it was and I didn't really know it was that loud. It's because I can dial it back and... But it was 198 decibels, which is the same uh, level of noise as a jet at takeoff. And, you know, when that happened, I was like, okay, this is in my wheelhouse. They're displacing these whales. But I didn't know that the first day, and I didn't know that the second day or the second month or the, even the next year. It took a few years to realize they had just left. The resident whales, the transients, learned to put an island between themselves and the farms at all times. But um, then in 2001, a neighbor brought me a little salmon covered in sea lice two little salmon. And I had been reading up on salmon farms in Norway and the sea lice epidemics. And I was like, 
Okay. I got a piece of crinoline from one of my daughter's dresses and I took a piece of copper tubing and I bent it in a circle and I made a dip net. And I just went around and started catching these things. And yeah, that was the point. That was the point of no return. Because then I was just like obsessed with capturing the event, figuring out how to study the sea lice, trying to communicate it to government, invited grad students to come and live with me. I fed them kale and brown rice and coconut milk. My kids called it glop. <laughs> and, um, and then I just, I had to tell myself, okay, Alex, you're not studying whales right now. Because when they left, I had this tremendous growing guilt that, okay, a real whale researcher would leave if the whales are gone. But my kids were in school and it was my home. It was inconvenient for me to leave. And that made me feel guilty that I wasn't a real whale scientist because I was rathering, preferring to stay home. But then I realized what it really was. I had bailed on Corky and done nothing. That had, guilt had been with me forever. And now her home territory was being invaded by these, this industrial aquaculture that was displacing her entire family. And it was time for me to step up. And it was my home at that time too. So that whole female thing kicked in because they were lying to us. And so that's when I guess I became a conservationist, but I didn't think of myself as one. Why not? Because I wasn't getting paid to do it. <laughs> I, it wasn't a job and uh, it was just my, my life and my partner at the time, he, you know, it, I guess I became, maybe I was angry or maybe I was just obsessive or not paying him enough attention. And so I was kind of trying to hide it a little bit. I was trying to do it at, at night when everybody was asleep and, um, you know, so I, I really didn't want to admit to it that I had gone all in on this fight. But, and I, I refused to call it a fight for a long, long time. I don't think it was until like 2010. I was like, okay, you know what? This is a fight. I'm fighting you. I'm fighting you off. Um, and so that was another, another change. And how do you think conservation moving forward into um, the, after you decided it was a fight, how do you feel conservation has changed in the 25, 30 years that you've been in this thing? It's no longer being left to the David Suzuki Foundation. It's people everywhere who are simply stepping up at certain times. Um, it's switched to occupations and, you know, activism, not just marches. Occupation is very different than a protest because you are now going to simply stand in the way, which is a incredibly powerful thing. I highly recommend. Um, it is, you know, there's still the stigma as a scientist of being an activist. Oh, she's an activist. Don't, you know, basically don't be seen with her. Or it's, it's deadly for young scientists to um, be associated with you. But once again, Jane Goodall was incredible. I went to a presentation of hers maybe in like 2012 or something. And she remembered this conference in England that she went to as a young woman where 
she, she was just really upset with the fact that these chimpanzees, these amazing sentient beings, these family members were being treated so horrifically by the uh, science industry. And she said, I went in as a scientist and I came out an activist. I'm an activist. And um, it's interesting that it's been made into a derogatory word, but if you have the data, if you are the eyewitness, it's hard to see the impact of salmon farms. You have to look at thousands of little fish. You have to tow plankton nets. You have to you know, read uh, internal government documents. You have to go to court. So if you're the person who's gained that knowledge and you are a pacifist or, or a what, I don't know, you just ignore that, you're really committing a crime. And it's gotten so critical now uh, to be an active scientist that uh, I'm working very hard to encourage other scientists to be kind to people that are facing um, criticism and impact to their career. Um, I try to look out for funding for the scientists that are being so brave, taking a really motherly attitude towards them, or maybe it's a grandmotherly attitude towards them of wanting to protect them because it's absolutely critical to be an activist at this point in the world. Mm. Well, my next question was, how do you feel activism fits into conservation? But you've kind of already answered that. Yes, yeah, so the number of organizations that got involved in trying to fight or change the salmon farming industry really took different tacks. And some wanted to work within the government programs, which are really just designed to absorb your, uh, your, absorb your energy and do nothing. But they do, the government does offer these, these uh, opportunities to testify or to enter a, uh, a process where all of your concerns and recommendations are recorded. Other people, like myself, wanted to do the science and do the activism. And I think in the end, all of these things are needed. You need somebody at the table who is going through the process, if for only to say, uh, these, these processes don't work. But if you don't, if nobody engages with them, then you're just kind of seen as an unruly crowd. And I think you get swept off the table. Part of the problem is funding. And so the big groups that are at the table tend to get the funding. The activists are always a scraggly group. Um, we are, you know, we're like a flock of birds. If you've ever watched a small flock of birds, the way that whole flock just changes direction and shape and becomes one thing and another, that's what activism is. It's, it's not, you can't say, here's my five-year plan. Um, and uh, they work together, but activism, the act of occupying a situation and just standing in the way not being violent, being very clear with what it is that must stop and must happen, we could change absolutely anything if enough people did that. It's, it's so powerful. I'm sure government doesn't really want everybody to know. Uh, but if a million people all stood together and said, We're, we need to stop drilling for oil, it would stop. So it is a very, very powerful tool and we don't think to use it because we go back to it's, oh, I'm just one person, I'm just an average person. Uh, so activism is absolutely critical. Conservation, yeah, great. 
it's a good process, but activism is absolutely critical. How did activism and the ideas of occupying things, how did that, that's what changed everything? It changed everything. It's so interesting, and I've thought about it endlessly uh, since, since we succeeded by conducting this activism, but I was like, what, what triggered that? How did that happen? How could that have happened faster so that we could have responded sooner and there would have been more uh, wild salmon DNA out there? Um, and there's really just this magic thing that happens when you've done a lot of the groundwork, so all of the science that had happened, all of the processes, all the legal challenges, they had happened and so people knew about them, people knew each other because I'd done marches, brought people together, there was this loose alliance of people that knew each other, were concerned about this issue. But then it was this boat that came in, the Sea Shepherd Society gave me this huge sailboat and crew to do whatever I wanted, which was, I was like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do with this? And on that boat, I invited a hereditary chief to take us through his territory, the Discovery Islands, George Kwok's sister, Jr. And he decided to go on the salmon farms and put a camera down. Once the other First Nations saw what was in the pens, the disease and the crowding and the open sores and all the rest of it, um, they wanted this out of their waters. And then... The third thing that happened, we were in a meeting and we're talking about what to hap- what, 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 need, what needs to happen next. And you know, there was all kinds of like, oh, we should just get a tugboat and hook onto the farms and drag them out of here. Of course, that is physically impossible. These things are huge. There's no way you could move them with the nets down. Uh, and uh, Chief Ernest Alfred, a <laughs> kindergarten teacher, says, I don't know what the rest of you are going to do, but I'm going to occupied the Swanson Islands fish farm in Namgi's territory until it's moved. And that was the switch. Once that switch was on, it didn't stop. That went on for 280 days through the winter. Winter on these farms is like waves over the farms. There's aggressive men working on the farms, although they never did anything. They were frightening. Uh, people's marriages were breaking up, women were there without their children, phoning home, trying to, you know, keep everything together. Uh, it was incredible. And then the leadership of those nations were, realized they needed to do something because somebody was going to get hurt. The majority of people occupying the farms were young indigenous women, and we all know they need to be protected. I, I, the company already had an injunction against me, but I tied my speedboat to another boat that was tied. So I wasn't actually touching the farm. So I could keep an eye on, I could keep reporting out to the world. Um, and we were so afraid when the leadership went behind closed doors that they were going to cave in and do less than the wild salmon really needed. But they didn't. They ran hard and they missed deadline after deadline after deadline. And a year later they came out and they had this agreement, the Broughton uh, Aquaculture Transition Initiative, and now there's just two farms left, and every year the fish look better, and it is an absolutely incredible feeling to have had that succeed.
Can you talk a little bit about what yesterday meant? <laughs> so many things come to my mind that I want to say all at once. One of the things is, so when this, when this battle first happened and I could see how bad these farms were, I desperately wanted to keep studying the orca. I really wanted to give this issue to somebody who would fight the fight. And it, to me, as a young mother at the time, I felt like I'd been given this child in a basket had been left on my door. And I just, I, I just wanted to give it to somebody. I wanted to give it to an environmental group or to the government or to the nation. Somebody take this problem and, and, or this child and raise it, deal with it. And so what happened in the big house on Saturday is I realized oh, they had it. The First Nations, nothing is going to happen in the Broughton Archipelago without their explicit approval. They had reasserted their ownership. And I know they don't use that word ownership, but... In their owners in the light of they will decide how it will be used. They will even decide who gets to be there. They will decide the future of the creatures in there. And the leader, First Nation leadership, I mean, some of it, not all of it, is so incredible because unlike non-Indigenous people who will often say things like, oh, if this gets any worse, I'm out of here. First Nations don't ever say that. They are bound to the lands, uh, to the waters, to their territory. And so that type of leadership, a leadership that springs from thousands of years of, of being in this environment and no plans to leave, is really different. And that's the rhythm that the wild world needs, that the ecosystems, that the planet needs. They need the long view and so I just felt such a burden lifting from my shoulders. I felt such joy in seeing such, you know, I've, se I've seen such good behavior, such strength, such people like, like First Nations are now, when I overlook the waters, the boats coming and going from that initiative are now one of the dominant boats out there. It used to be just the salmon farming industry. Prior to that, it was commercial fishing, but it became for a while the only boats going back and forth were the crew boats, the barges with the cranes, the feed sheds. And now it's the First Nations with their tourism, uh, with their healing center, with this initiative, and they're watching everything. And so that place is safe and... <sighs> I'm a lot older now, I'm 66 and getting tired. And so I'm one of the luckiest people in the world to have been in a fight for so long and have it come to this, where the fish are coming back, but also the place is safe because the real owners have taken the reins again. And so every time I heard, we don't want fish farms in the big house, I just was like, pinching myself that I was awake, that this was really happening because people were afraid to talk about it because the industry was so aggressive. And uh, so it was, uh, it, was, it was, 
I really don't know what the right word is, but it was a very, very big feeling that made me feel very warm and happy inside. For people who weren't there, the last dance at the uh, ceremonies in the big house was like being in a school of salmon. Um, the joy was palpable. It was just like, it was, the joy was the water that we were swimming in. And there's so many people arrived onto the dirt floor of the big house around the fire that you, you could barely move, but there's this act where when the drums do a certain thing, you switch positions and then you switch positions again. And it was like the rhythm of the fish moving. It, because the joy was so palpable, it just was like electric current running through us all, linking us together, feeling the, the power of that much joy and, and strength and unity. How do you see conservation being cultivated in the future? How would you like to see the future happen for any young person that wants to get involved? The, the pace of these kinds of successes has to pick up because we're, you know, the planet is, is just crying out for help right now. And so there's a number of things that are very important for people who are starting out in conservation. And the first thing is look for the lever that is going to make the difference. Try not to waste your attention on all the other things, on the comments on Facebook, or, you know, just look for exactly what you need to change, who is in control, and go after that. And as you do that, it's very, very important to be kind and inclusive with your allies. There is this quote that's out there saying, um, one person can save the world. That is not true. It has to be a network and alliance. And so as you start out, be very, very aware of the people around you that are involved and try to move forward as a group because in the end, what matters is really who's bigger, the industry that's destroying the very thing you're trying to keep alive or you and your allies. It, it's, it's, not a great measure of democracy that that is still how you win these fights just like we did in the schoolyards but that is the truth and so just know that your allies even though they can be a problem i i think of myself and my allies like a herd of wild horses we kick each other we have different backgrounds we look different we're really all different but we are running in the same direction and it's very, very important to make sure your allies 
are as empowered as possible and to take care of yourself because your your body is your battery and that's the only way you're going to keep going and it is a long haul and um, don't be afraid follow your inner guidance and don't be afraid because there's there's hope there is tremendous hope so we're a, we're a really clever species and when we put our mind to figuring stuff out we do and you know for example here where the industrial aquaculture industry has had such a terrible impact on wild salmon and the resident orca we are also seeing the return of the humpback whales the return of sea otters the return of the pacific white-sided dolphins this ocean is not dead don't let anybody tell you that it's over if somebody's telling you it's over that's somebody who wants to make money destroying the place they're trying to turn you off depower you there is a lot of hope and these natural systems are so huge and so resilient they are used to change all of our ecosystems survived ice ages and volcanoes that blanketed the world and you know massive changes of species we are living in a system that is incredibly powerful and if we just align ourselves with it make sure that you know that you're moving in the direction that the ecosystem wants to go, needs to go, then you are, as I said before, you're part of this bigger system. And I have to believe that there's hope. Absolutely. Yes, we've made some changes that are irrevocable, but I, <laughs> trees are still making oxygen and sucking down the carbon. The fish are still swimming. The clouds are still moving. It's still all here. So go for it. Thank you, Alex. Thank you so much. Thank you. I do just want to share with you the one of the reasons why I believe that it does work. And one of the reasons why I wanted to make this podcast is because the reason I'm here in Canada right now is actually because of you. Because when mm. I was 13 years old, I found a book in my school library that was called Listening to Wales by you. And that's why I came to Canada oh my goodness. in 2012 for the first time. That's why I volunteered with Janie. That's why I ended up with Orca Lab. And that's why I've spent the last 13 years listening to Wales. And so because of picking up that book, and this was even in the very early stages of what you would have deemed moving into conservation and activism... It still worked because I'm still here 13 yes. years later and I couldn't do what you did and I wasn't a scientist, but I tried to find the skills that I had and put them to use, how I felt they could create a life out here and I guess that's now what I'm doing. So it's also part of the reason why I wanted to make this podcast because if everyone hears stories like this, then it might do the same thing that it did for me when I was 13. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you really have used your skills. And I guess that, that leads me to one last point, and that is tell your story, tell your story, tell your story. Because that's how people learn. That's how you bring people to the fight, is telling the human stories. The stories are the most important part. Mm -hmm. And that's what you've been telling the story of the salmon for the last 30 years. And Yes. Right. So right now, um, there's about seven First Nations who have kicked the salmon farms out of their territories. 45 farms are gone. We have 57 more to go. And in the Broughton Archipelago, most of the fish no longer have sea lice. They look beautiful, fat and sassy and silver. 
And last year, the generation that came back to the Hada River increased by over tenfold. They went from approximately 1,000 to 11,500 fish. Now that's just one generation, but down in Discovery Islands, the same thing is going on. They took the farms out, the fish look beautiful, and all of the rivers around the Discovery Islands all saw a surge in pink salmon again. This summer will be the first year of the Fraser sockeye returning who did not get exposed to salmon farms in the Discovery Islands. So I'm very curious to see how their run is doing. But all the indicators are we've lifted this enormous barrier and these young fish are actually making it to the ocean without swimming through clouds of viruses, bacteria, and parasites. And it's really great to partner with salmon because you give those fish an inch and they take a mile. They really are incredibly resilient. They just needed to get to the ocean to do well. I, I'm, I've been searching for the word. It's not an honor. It's bigger than joy, but to actually look out of my window at the Broughton Archipelago and know that I did something that took that place back to where it was to kind of reset it and give it a second chance. That is the most incredible feeling. I feel a lot more like the young woman that I was because I came, became so depressed and so angry. I had, you know, a tick on my face where my muscles were jumping all the time. I was obsessive and so interesting. One of the matriarchs looked at me at the, in the big house and she's like, Oh, Alex, you look so much younger. <laughs> my face is wrinkled and my hair is white. And, but she's like, you look so different than during the occupation. And I was like, yeah, I am different. Thanks to you guys. And thanks to you as well. That's Well, I never moved a farm. I never moved a single farm. <laughs> Nothing I did changed anything for the fish. But for some reason, some First Nations trusted me enough to look themselves. And that changed everything. And I'm so grateful for that, that they took a chance because I did not know how to talk to the people of this land when I first arrived. So yeah, it was really, I'm so grateful that they gave me a listen and decided, yeah, this was a fight they would take on. I hope everyone listening to this is brushing away goosebumps as I just was. Thank you so much to Alex for sharing her story and inspiring people on the ground to find their lever. Got some thoughts and feelings? Let's keep this conversation going. Please do get in touch, rate, subscribe and comment to help other people find this podcast and let's keep cultivating conservation. <laughs>